Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Yugish Lankadeva. He's an associate professor. He's the theme head of systems neuroscience at the Flora University of Melbourne in Australia. I'm going to talk about uh, the pathophysiology of multi-organ dysfunction that comes from sepsists. Terrible, terrible condition that uh, we'll get into. So, Yugish, thank you for coming. Uh, thanks for having me here, Richard. If you would, uh, let's start out. Uh, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into this area of medicine. Yes, yeah, so I was originally from Sri Lanka, born and raised, and I came to Australia to do my university studies. Finished my Bachelor of Biomedicine with honors at um, Finn University, and then went to Monash University to undertake my PhD in cardiovascular uh, medicine and physiology. Uh, that's when I kind of fell in love with cardiovascular system and how that affects other vital organs such as the brain and the kidneys that kind of perpetuates into a vicious cycle in most diseases. And following my PhD at Monash, then I kind of moved to the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, which is also called Flory now, to really undertake this research in uh, critical illnesses such as sepsis and also heart surgery requiring the heart-lung machine or cardiopulmonary bypass, which are two of the most common uh, causes of brain and kidney injury in need just to get in it. And um, yeah, like, I mean, it's a field that's fascinated me because, uh, you know, you're dealing with particularly ill patients treated in need just to in it, and the treatment options are really limited for those vulnerable populations. So new effective diagnostics and treatments are urgently needed. That's what really drives my research. So in talking about uh, sepsis, can we start with that? Like, where does that occur? Only a hospital setting? And what does it do to uh, some of the body and organs? Yeah, so sepsis, um, actually 70% of the cases of sepsis uh, is community-based and 30% is uh, hospital-acquired. Sepsis is usually characterized by an underlying infection, be bacterial, viral, fungal, or polymicrobial in nature. It usually starts from a localized source, but when our innate immune system can't uh, Athlete within a localized source kind of spreads around the body, kind of causing a systemic infection, which then leads to life-threatening balls in blood pressure that then drives multi-organ dysfunction and death. And currently, you know, concerningly, it actually affects about 50 million people around the world every year, and it kills about 11 million people every year. And due to our increasing incidence of antibiotic resistance and also due to our aging population, annual incidence of cases of sepsis continues to rise. So where does sepsis come from? How do people get it? Yeah, so it could be like a urinary tract infection, which is quite common in females. could be due to a lung infection like pneumonia, be like a fungal infection in the leg. I mean, so as I mentioned, it kind of starts in a localized source within like, you know, localized area in the body. And then if your immune system cannot battle it within that localized source within our body, then it kind of spreads to the bloodstream. And then it kind of goes around the body and then perpetuates into sepsis. Okay. And, and again, what's the cascade of, uh, of issues that happen? And, you know, when are the organs affected and how? 
Yeah, so usually uh, when you develop sepsis, it's characterized by hypotension or life-threatening walls in our blood pressure. And usually these patients are given drugs to actually maintain blood pressure in interscarinates, but they lose responsiveness to these drugs or vasopressors, as we call it, that are given to restore blood pressure back to normal. So it kind of leads to this perpetuating cycle of, you know, low blood pressure that reduces perfusion of blood supply and oxygen delivered vital organs, then leads to metabolic insufficiency, and then causes multi-organ failure, and yeah, often causes mortality. It's the leading cause of death in just care units around the world. Why would a, you know, why would it start with a drop in blood pressure? Like, how does sepsis happen? What is it? Is it certain bacteria that are getting into parts of the body that uh, are wreaking havoc or like what what is it yeah so it kind of causes this the systemic inflammatory response or like you know your body kind of reacts to it with the what we call a systemic inflammatory reaction and then various uh chemicals neurohumoral uh, mediators are released like nitric oxide that can cause vasodilation of blood vessels that then drops our total peripheral resistance which then causes blood pressure to fall there is also edema, so like your blood vessels become leaky. So the volume kind of escapes from the intravascular components to the extravascular component. So yeah, it's kind of usually a combination of both. It's a leaky blood vessels as well as a increase in the peripheral vasodilatation or what we call vasoplegia, which leads to drops in blood pressure. Okay, is there a, again, a bacterial component or a viral component? Yeah, so basically like if, it's, if the origin of sepsis is bacterial, yeah, it's kind of like it's a systemic inflammatory response, viral, it's the same. So yeah, in response to any pathogenic agent, kind of releases these PAMPs, so as we call it, pathogen-associated molecular uh, patterns, and then kind of, you know, then damages the organs and then releases damage-associated molecular patterns. So yeah, various mediators are released in response to these actions. So does this typically occur in hospital settings or does it happen at home to people? Or at the scenes of accidents, like where does sepsis tend to occur and why? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, 70% of the cases usually are community acquired. So patients would, you know, become ill, like, you know, either with a lung infection. I mean, you'd get like pneumonia, you'd stay at home, sometimes take some antibiotics, be quite unwell. And then, uh, yeah, usually, you know, if your body can't resolve the infection, it kind of spreads across the body and then kind of present to hospital by critical ill, diagnosed with sepsis. And, in, you know, in females, it's quite common to have a urinary tract infection that could then kind of lead to sepsis, could start there and put across the body. Hospitals, it's quite common after major surgical procedures like heart, you know, major abdominal surgery or major heart surgery. And it's very prevalent in patients that are immunocompromised that have uh, pre-existing comorbidities like cancer, HIV or diabetes or hypertension. Any, any condition that really compromises your immune system, these type of patients are particularly more vulnerable. How serious is it? How fast does it progress? And what are some medications? Well, currently, it's very serious. And uh, the problem is currently there are really no targeted treatments, treatments for sepsis besides uh, supportive treatments. I mean, right now, human fluids maintain central blood volume, kind of mitigate against the leaky blood vessels. And if fluids cannot maintain blood pressure, they're given vasopressors. And then they're given antibiotics. So really, the treatments are really largely palliative or supportive in nature, where the clinicians hope that once the infection is resolved, that the underlying organ function will recover. So again, despite all these treatments, it's a leading cause of death in interest units around the world. 
So new effective treatments are urgently. Well, how fast will someone go downhill to the point where they're irrecoverable? Typically, really depends on person to person, Richard. I mean, uh, really hard to kind of say that. So some patients really depends on how critically ill they are and how well they're responding to treatments. Patients that are responding fluids or vasopressors, they can kind of sustain those patients for a lot longer. But in some cases, patients become unresponsive to intensive care treatments. In that case, patients can go downhill within 24 hours and pretty much die within 24 hours or even less. So it's really depending on patient to patient, depending on how critical ill, what type of morbidities they come in, or they had sepsis. So it's really variable. Are you doing any research into this area or is it all clinical? Like, what, so what do you do about this? Where do you go from here? Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest problems is it's really difficult to kind of, uh, understand what's going on within organs in these critically ill uh, populations of patients, which really kind of provides the for us to really develop clinically relevant animal models to replicate this disease. And this is kind of, that's been one of the biggest shortfalls in the field is the lack of clinically relevant animal models to simulate these complex patient conditions. So that's what we have done at the Flory. We uh, brought together clinicians and scientists, and we kind of co-designed large animal modeling that replicates this disease as best as possible to clinical environment. So what we have done is we have isolated a gram-negative bacterial strain from a patient with sepsis, and then we give this, administer this directly via the bloodstream in sheep. And within 24 hours, they develop a phenotype that is very similar to uh, what we see in patients with sepsis, where there are life-threatening falls in blood pressure, they have metabolic insufficiency, lung dysfunction, brain dysfunction, dysfunction. And we actually have quite unique techniques at the Flore to instrument multiple organs. So we can instrument the brain, the heart, and the lungs. So we can actually take a systems physiological approach to really understand the onset and the mechanisms of disease in various organs. So which is really the first step to really try to kind of develop targeted diagnostics and therapeutics on this complex condition. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. I guess you couldn't do an organoid model because you'd need a whole bunch of organs connected together and working in concert, right? Now, it's really difficult, Richard, because it's a systemic condition. So isolating a particular organ is not really the way to go. I've been researching this condition for about 10 years of my career. And one of the biggest uh, challenges that I've faced when using this model is that with conditional acceptance that affects every organ in your body, you, you treat an organ, I'd say you're treating the kidneys, uh, there is a side effect that happens in another organ like the brain. So we really need to take a holistic view and take systems physiological approaches and really try to understand what's going on in every organ so we can develop a treatment that is universally beneficial not just to one organ, particularly for conditional acceptance. Well, what was the bacteria that you uh, you guys analyzed and induced this? So we are using a gram-negative bacterial strain called Escherichia coli, which is one of the 
most prevalent bacterial strains that are causing sepsis in patients. It accounts for about 80% of the bacterial infections that cause sepsis in the human population. Oh, so it's a certain strain of E. coli that's, that's where does it uh, tend to occur? You isolated it from a person that had sepsis or where does it come from? That's, that's absolutely right. So we isolated it from a patient that had sepsis. I mean, just in general, though, where does the, uh, is the strain already be in people and everywhere? It just gets changed by conditions, then becomes a problem? Or is it a problem if it shows up at all in people? No, it's a common strain, and we kind of do testing, my, my microbial testing kind of verify that it's still a relevant strain that's uh, present in the population. So, yeah, like, I mean, we've done that testing to kind of verify that it's a common strain that's present, common strain that we... Okay, so what do you think is going to be the steps forward to combat sepsis? What ideas are coming to? 2021, we had this breakthrough discovery at the Flory where we used a mega dose of the sodium salt or vitamin C or sodium ascorbate, as we call it. So it's pH balance, unlike the normal native vitamin C that comes, which is ascorbic acid. So when we give this pH balance formulation of sodium ascorbate directly via our bloodstream found that it kind of led to profound beneficial effects in terms of reversing multi-organ dysfunction, the large animal model. So uh, basically reversed cardiovascular dysfunction, it kind of reduced the requirements for blood pressure maintaining drugs or vasopressors. Uh, we can completely wean the animals off vasopressors to maintain blood pressure. It uh, reversed lung dysfunction, it reversed brain dysfunction, it reversed kidney dysfunction. It was quite a remarkable breakthrough in uh, 2021 following which we treated a critically ill COVID-19 patient with sepsis on compassionate grounds. And this patient, again, had very similar responses to what we saw in the animal model, where the patient's blood pressure was able to be maintained by complete weaning of vasopressors. patient's kidney function recovered, and we could turn the patient off machine ventilator 12 days after treatment and uh, discharge the patient from hospital 22 days after treatment, following which we got its approval to do a pilot uh, double-blind randomized clinical trial at Austin Health, Professor Ronaldo Palomo, and we just finished patient recruitment last December in 2022. And the physiological signals we got from this clinical trial was very promising in terms of, you know, significantly increasing kidney function, re- significant reductions in vasopressor requirements for blood pressure control, and also reduction in uh, multi-organ dysfunction score, what called the sequential organ failure assessment score. This is currently being submitted to critical care, which is a just a care journal. Very good. Do you see any scientists in the field that are focusing on sepsis that are advancing certain treatments that have the potential to work? Or is it really more up to you and this is a very niche thing that's being studied? Like, what does the lay of the land look like? Well, I think there are various uh, treatments that are coming, you know, like, I mean, people are trying. It's, it's a condition that's kind of like increasing in prevalence. That's a major global problem, unmet need. But we do believe we are kind of leading the field with this particular treatment. And as I mentioned, as for most researchers, being at a treatment that is targeted towards one mechanism, one benefit that we are seeing with this treatment is it, it's got holistic effects towards proving multi-organ dysfunction. So we are very uh, encouraged by the fact that it's not just reversing organ dysfunction within one organ bed. It actually kind of has multi-organ benefits towards the brain, the kidneys, the cardiovascular system, and the lungs. So we are very encouraged by those findings and we're very excited to move this forward. Where, I guess you just deal with patients locally or, or are you working on clinical trials yourself, you know, and recruiting to, uh, you know, to get certain things going or is it is it more just clinical work that you're doing right now? 
No, I'm basically, I'm more focused on the animal research. So I, I focus a lot of my efforts on trying to really understand the mechanisms of action on the physiological, biochemical, and immunological function, functional effects and the effects of uh, sodium ascorbate on those organ systems. But the clinical trials are run by our collaborators at various hospitals across mainland Australia. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about the uh, the stuff you're working on? Where can they go? Yeah. So I think um, we were really fortunate. Uh, it was the end of last year. I received a $5 million grant from the Medical Research Future Fund from the Federal Government of Australia. It is really a great group of scientists from leading medical research institutes um, across Australia, like Flory, the Doherty, Beehive, and the Mac and Monash University, really understand the physiological, biochemical, and immunological mechanisms. And this finding also enables us to now move this therapy forward, phase 1B and phase 2 clinical trials throughout Florida, New South Wales, South Australia, Northern Shore, Western Australia over the next five years. So this really kind of brings together this really great group of scientists and clinicians that are kind of united under one banner with common purpose. And yeah, I, I'm really excited to kind of like see where this goes in the next five years and see what kind of new discoveries that we can make that could really kind of push this treatment forward beyond Australia clinical trials across the world. Well, very good. Yagish, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.